I got to be honest with you, I never thought we'd get this many people this morning. <laughs> so God bless you. You know, I know the dog sleds are outside, but uh, God bless you guys for coming. And if you would, could I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 17. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, although you may not know it if you've been here the last two months. I checked my notes, and the last time we were in John's Gospel was November 28th. Well, we had Christmas messages and New Year's messages and special messages. and So let me review quickly so as to bring everyone up to speed. Uh, first of all, let me just stop and say that as we look at the four Gospels, we can see that three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are similar. Because of that, they are known as the synoptic gospels, from a Greek word meaning to see together or to share a common point of view. The synoptic gospels focus primarily on Jesus' Galilean ministry and his public teachings, whereas John's gospel is unique in that it focuses mainly on Jesus' Judean ministry and his private teachings to his disciples. Now, here's something you may not have realized. Almost one half of John's entire gospel deals with the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, and about half of that focuses on the last 12 hours of his life before the cross. What that does is it gives us a detailed look into the final hours of Jesus' life before his death in a way the synoptic gospels just can't. That's what makes John's gospel so unique and such a blessing. It focuses in on the last few days and especially the last few hours of his life. Uh, the time that he withdrew from public ministry was pouring himself into his disciples since they would be taking over for him in a very short time. And so it's a blessing to get in there and hear him give them a private briefing, which is what we've been studying for the last few months in John's gospel, which will help us since we are part of that team, if I can put it that way, the body of Christ that has been commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. However, as we come to John 17, we also get an intimate look at Jesus spending some time with his father in prayer before his crucifixion. Uh, and this is a prayer, this is time with the father that we don't get in the other gospels as well. In fact, Many scholars call John 17 as Jesus' high priestly prayer, his high priestly prayer. Some have called John 17 the holy of holies of the Gospels because it gives us an intimate glimpse of the Son communing with the Father, which is why I'm calling this series in John 17 with Jesus behind the veil. And the veil I have in mind is the veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was allowed to go into that second compartment, the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. And in Jesus' day, that veil was not a veil. It was a wall of cloth, uh, 30 feet high, and some say between 12 and 18 inches thick, made up of one layer after another of cloth. It was literally a wall that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And as I said, only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur. Jesus is our great high priest. 
And so this is a very incredible chapter. In fact, one author put it this way. He said, and I quote, In the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, the veil is drawn back, and we are admitted into the Holy of Holies. We are allowed to witness face-to-face -face communion between the Father and the Son, inter-Trinitarian communion. We are permitted to approach hand-in-hand hand with Jesus into the very throne room of God. In John 17, we enter into the inner chamber of the Trinity, into the very sanctuary of heaven, and as such, the secret place of the Most High is opened to us. In this holy place, we must put off our shoes, as it were, for we are standing on holy ground, and we must tune our ears to listen with humility, eagerness, reverence, and awe, for this is perhaps the holiest ground in all the Bible, end quote. And I agree with every word of that statement, all right? Now, to set the stage, Jesus and his disciples had finished the Passover meal, and uh, after singing the traditional Passover hymn, which Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, verse 30, they left the upper room. And we're now making their way through the streets of Jerusalem and the temple precincts towards the Mount of Olives. Along the way, Jesus keeps teaching these disciples, these closest of his men. Uh, he keeps teaching them one last time before his crucifixion. We've called it his farewell address or his final teaching before the cross. As we come to John 17, the Lord now stops teaching his disciples and starts praying to his Father. This is truly, guys, the Lord's Prayer. This is truly the Lord's Prayer. Unlike the prayer Jesus gave to his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, that we typically call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus could never have prayed that prayer. Father, forgive me my sins, as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Are you kidding me? No, folks, John 17 contains the real Lord's Prayer in all of its glory and majesty. And as such, we must approach this chapter, I believe, in a spirit of worship and humility. I mean, think about what we're about to study. We are privileged. Now, this is only a few hours before the Son of God was to give his life as a ransom for all of us. And here... We have the privilege of spending a little time with him as he is communing with his father before this incredible event was going to take place. Um, I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing to ponder what we are allowed to see here in John 17. See and learn from. Now, guys, this prayer is divided into three main parts. First, Jesus prayed for himself. And basically told the Father that his work on earth had been finished. That would be verses 1 to 5. Then he prayed for his disciples, those men who had been with him for three and a half years, that the Father would keep them and sanctify them. That's verses 6 to 19. And then he closed his prayer incredibly by praying for you and for me and for all his disciples throughout the history of the church age, all the way down through history that we might be unified in him and one day share his glory. Well, that's verses 20 to 26. Now, to fill in the context, because guys, embedded in this prayer 
is something that is really important for all of us. Now we're, yes, kind of eavesdropping on Jesus' prayer to his Father. That's true. But embedded in this prayer is really where the Lord is laying the, ground, the foundation for victorious Christian living. Now that's a subject that all of us relate to, right? What Christian doesn't want to live a victorious life, right? And in John chapter 17, we actually get Jesus laying the foundation for this uh, idea of being overcomers, right? You say, what are you talking about? Well, as we look at the context, Jesus had ended his farewell teaching to his disciples at the end of chapter 16, verse 33, with a shout of victory. I have overcome the world, he said. This, of course, was in anticipation of his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, when he would step from the tomb victorious, having conquered over, first of all, the fallen world system of the devil, who usurped it, the world, from Adam and Eve. They gave it to him, but he was never intended by God to rule. This world is not the world God originally made for us to live in. I hope you understand that. When people look at this world and they say, how could a God of love just stop them? Because that is manifestly wrong to blame God for the mess this world is in, a mess that man invited of his own free will back in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus came. In fact, way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the first glimpse of the gospel. There's a, there's a Latin word that theologians use to sum it up. I can't pronounce it, so, you know, I'm just going to tell you what it is. And the idea is that we get our first glimpse of the gospel. What is it? Where the Father said, there's coming a day when I'm going to send a redeemer. The, he'll come by the seed of the woman. A woman doesn't have seed. The man has the seed. That was a reference to the virgin birth. And he's going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to restore everything I intended for mankind, that the devil has stolen, that mankind foolishly gave up. Now let the devil have it. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to fix it. And um, so Jesus, when he exited the tomb, he exited, first of all, victorious over Satan's fallen world system. He purchased it. It no longer belongs to Satan. And he's coming up back again someday to take possession of what he's bought and paid for. We call it the kingdom age. But he didn't just exit that tomb victorious over the devil in his kingdom. He exited that tomb, of course, victorious over death. And that's where all of us really come in, right? But here in John 17, in anticipation of his coming victory, he is asking the Father to give his disciples then and now, all of us, victory so that we might overcome the world even as he had overcome the world. In this context, the world, cosmos in the Greek, refers to the fallen world system. That is controlled by the devil and which has been in rebellion against God since the Garden of Eden. One commentator said concerning this, and I quote, he said, no matter what events occurred later that evening, 
This prayer makes it clear that Jesus, listen, was and is the overcomer. He was not the victim. He was and is the victor. Be of good cheer, he had encouraged his disciples. I have overcome the world, chapter 16, verse 33. The word world is used 19 times in this prayer. So it is easy to see the connection between this prayer, John 17, and that victorious cry Jesus cried at the end of chapter 16, I have overcome the world. If you and I, uh, if you and I will understand and apply the truths revealed in this profound prayer, it will enable us to be overcomers too, end quote. And I think we all want to be overcomers. I know I do. So let's begin, okay? Let's begin. And um, verse 1, well, in the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. Now, can I just stop and say this? There have been times when I've met people, Christians, who have said to me, I don't pray for myself. I pray for others. You know, that sounds kind of spiritual, right? Well, I feel kind of selfish now. I pray for myself all the time, you know? It's not a spiritual thing to say. It's a foolish thing to say. And right here I have evidence of that because Jesus prayed for himself. Look, I pray for myself all the time. And I really often pray for myself first. Why? Because as Jesus said about the farmer, if the farmer doesn't eat some of the produce he grows, he won't be first, he won't be strong enough to feed anybody else. I have to focus on my relationship with God if I'm going to be any help to anyone else, which means i got to pray for myself and pray a lot. If I'm going to be in a place where I can at very least give anything to you in the way of spiritual truth from God's word, right? So Jesus starts off by praying for himself. Now, the things he prays, you might tend to gloss over but there are some things in these simple words that are absolutely dynamite doctrine. I'll try to bring them out, although I won't do justice to them all, nor will we be able to look at everything. But it first of all says Jesus spoke these words, right? What words? What words? Well, this is a reference to everything he had spoken in this final teaching that he had given to his disciples before the cross. The teaching that started in the upper room, end of, the up, uh, end of chapter 14, they left the upper room, making their way through the streets of Jerusalem and temple precincts onto the, uh, toward the Mount of Olives. They're still en route. They don't get there till verse chapter 18. But right now, what John is saying, uh, Jesus is saying, these things, uh, he, John says, Jesus spoke these words, meaning that he had now finished his Last teaching to his disciples before the cross, right? That um, everything he had spoken to them, they needed to hear one more time. And so these words were spoken in chapters 14 through 16. That's the idea, all right? He said, Father, the hour has come. He lifted up his eyes, eyes toward heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, you might pass over that. Of course, we know he was talking about the cross, right? Which was looming in the next few hours. Uh, that's pretty obvious. 
But I don't think we really understand the depth of what those words really communicate. Can I paraphrase a little, okay? Father, the hour has come. In other words, the hour has finally come. Finally come. The hour that all of human history has been waiting for. The crucial moment in the, in the redemption of human history. This is the moment that mankind, whether they realize it or not, has been waiting for ever since the fall. And God promised, I'm going to send a redeemer. He's going to fix this mess. The hour has finally come for Jesus to bear the sins of humanity. Jesus is saying basically this. He's saying it's here. It's finally here. Father, from before time began, through all of human history, to my birth in the 33 years since then, it's finally arrived. It's finally here at last is the idea. Remember what he said the night before the crucifixion? We're still actually in that night in the upper room while he was observing Passover with great desire. I have longed to keep this Passover with you because he knew it would officially begin the new covenant which the next day he would ratify with his blood. But folks, the climax of all of human history was about to happen. One author said this was the glory hour. This was the glory hour that God had prepared from the before the foundation of the world. Again, let me paraphrase. Jesus is saying the time had come to blot out the curse, to reconcile man to God, to destroy the power of sin, Satan, and death, to dis dispossess the usurper and take the world back to God and begin the process of bringing God's kingdom to the earth. The hour has come. And then the Lord says something that might sound odd to many. He said, Father, glorify your son. Glorify your son. Now, of course, in saying this, he was referring to the cross. The cross. Guys, we must understand that for all the pain, for all the anguish, for all the suffering and sin bearing that Jesus was about to go through on the cross, really, as he saw it, it was glory. Not only for himself, but also would bring glory to the Father as well. Guys, for all those who know God through Jesus Christ, the cross was the most glorious thing that has ever happened for mankind in the history of the world. You know why? Primarily because it allowed for a new day to be made possible in the history of the world for mankind. For mankind. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Turn to Matthew. Go left. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And let's read the first three verses together because Malachi is prophesying of this new day that was made possible by the cross, right? For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be made, stumble, will be made stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up now wait a minute i thought you said that we were talking about a new day a glorious new day yes but understand the jewish people were on a lunar calendar not on a solar calendar what do i mean their day started at sundown unlike ours that typically starts about sun up in general 
So when you read the prophets, and they're prophesying about a new day, it often starts with the darkness of judgment. Because when Jesus returns, the first thing he's going to do is judge his enemies, those who refuse to receive him as king and savior. And after he judges them, he will then establish his kingdom, a kingdom of light and life. But it will come after the darkness of judgment. Okay, that's the idea. So this new day is coming, burning like an oven. The wicked, the proud, they're going to be burned up like stubble, says the Lord. Verse 2. But to you who, you who fear my name, the son of righteousness. Wait, whoa, what? How did son, S-U-N, thought we're talking about Jesus. I had a guy tell me one time as I showed him this verse because he was we were talking about the millennial kingdom and he didn't believe in it. And I showed him this verse and he looked at it and said, this got to be a typo. It's got to be S-O-N. No, it's not a typo, okay? It's talking about the dawning of a new day. The darkness of man's rebellion is going to be over. You know, the Jewish people, they understood this, and they longed for a new age. In their minds, the kingdom age, right? But the Jewish people had always looked at man's fall in the Garden of Eden as ushering in the darkness of an age of rebellion and evil. And they were longing for a new day when Messiah would come and reign and put all that evil away, right? Remember when Jesus at the end of Matthew 23 said, um, I'm going away, you can't follow me, and so on and so forth. Left there, went out to the Mount of Olives, sat down by, uh, under a fig tree or something, and the disciples came to him. They're crushed because they had believed he was going to set the kingdom up. That's why they were following him. Now you're going away? You're not going to see me anymore until you say, Blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, what's going on? So they followed him to the Mount of Olives. He sits down. They come to him and said, Lord, will you please tell us what will, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, the King James translates that and the end of the world. That's incorrect. What they were asking, the world's not going to end when Jesus sets up his kingdom. What is going to end is the darkness of man's evil and rebellion. As mankind has tried to govern himself over the last 6,000 years. How's that worked out? Right? They were looking for a new day when Messiah would reign visibly from Jerusalem over the whole world. And light would be truth and righteousness would reign with him. Right? And so the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. He's going to heal this planet. He's going to heal bodies. During the millennial kingdom, it says the lame shall jump for joy. The mute will speak the praises of God. The deaf will hear and so on. He's going to heal, not just the environment, which he will. He'll heal bodies, physical infirmities that the curse of sin brought into the world. So the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat. Like stall-fed calves. Well, I don't mind that. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. The kingdom age is in view, right? Now, can I say this? A glorious new day is coming. But somebody had to pay for it. Somebody had to pay for it. Just because salvation was free to us. 
doesn't mean it didn't cost the Son of God everything. Somebody had to pay for this new world. What do I mean? Somebody had to pay for sin. You can't have a world that is glorious and full of righteousness unless somebody pays for sin. And that's what happened at the cross. John 19, verse 30, as Jesus hung from the cross, at one point he said, it is what? Finished. The Greek is tetelestai, which could be translated paid in full. Jesus Christ paid for our sins, for this fallen world, and he's coming back to take possession of it to bring a new kingdom. Guys, skeptics believe that the cross was the downfall of Jesus, something that caught the Lord off guard, something that was unexpected and bad. This was the position of an unbeliever named Hugh Schoenfeld who wrote a book called The Passover Plot. I think it came out in 1968. Schoenfeld was an unbeliever, and he believed the disciples concocted the whole thing, that Jesus was shooting his mouth off, getting a little too big for his britches, and he really upset some of his enemies who eventually just killed him. And the disciples hid the body and said he rose from the dead. It was all a big plot. Well, that's an unbeliever's view of things. We know better, right? We know better. But there are those skeptics out there who believe that the cross caught Jesus off guard. It wasn't in the plan of God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Jesus said concerning the suffering of the cross, in John 18, 37, for this cause I came into the world to suffer and die. He said in Matthew 26, verse 54, how else could the scriptures be fulfilled without my going to the cross? This was all prophesied. Uh, this was all, pro you can, again, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 gives us the first glimpse of the gospel. And when it says that the serpent's going to bruise your heel, but you're going to crush his head, I believe what was in view was the cross. The devil was going to try to take Jesus out, but it was actually in the plan of God. The devil didn't realize. By trying to take Jesus out, by having him hung on a cross, the devil thought he could get rid of this threat, get rid of the Messiah, and say he would go on forever controlling the world. He didn't realize he played right into the plan of God. He killed the Lord. When you're talking about eternity, that was just a bruised heel. Because three days later, he stepped from the cross, the tomb, victorious. And alive, never to die ever again. You can read Psalms 16. Psalm 22 gives us a little prophetic glimpse at the cross and resurrection, if you're interested. But once again, guys, the death of Jesus Christ actually brought glory for himself or to himself and to his Father. You know, the world's concept of glory of glory really doesn't include suffering many times, okay? Although that wasn't all that was involved in the glory Jesus had in mind that would be brought to him and his Father by the events that were about to be set in motion in just a few hours. First of all, the glory that Jesus had in mind would come from his death, resurrection, ascension, his coronation, and eventual reign from Jerusalem over the whole world during the kingdom age. So it was much bigger than just the cross, right? But secondly, and here's what I want to kind of challenge you guys. We as Christians throw around phrases that we think we understand. And often we do understand them, but sometimes we don't even understand them. 
And if we don't quite understand them, unbelievers definitely don't get what we're talking about. What am I saying? We, the glory of God, right? Oh, the glory of God. The glory of God's glory is the glory of God. If you're witnessing to an unbeliever and you say, you know, the glory of God, what if they were to stop you and say, the glory of God, can you define that? What would you say? Uh, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure. Well, we need to be sure, right? We need to be sure. What, what is the glory of God? Because the cross brought glory to God. Because God's glory, listen, involves or encompasses, and this is what it is, his intrinsic, eternal attributes. So when somebody asks you, what is the glory of God? His intrinsic, eternal attributes. Don't be surprised if they say, but I need a little more. I don't quite understand what that means. Okay, it's a fair question. God's intrinsic eternal attributes are the qualities that are only found in his divine nature. They are not qualities manifested in the lives of fallen human beings. What am I talking about? Well, these things would include the love of God. Not that there isn't love in the world, but it's human love. It's not God's love, agape, completely sacrificial, others-centered love, right? At the cross, we saw the love of God in operation, the mercy of God, the grace of God. And let's not forget the justice of God that says sin has to be paid for and couldn't just be overlooked or, you know, swept under the proverbial rug. People say, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Unbelievers, are you witnessing? Why, why, why did Jesus, you know, Jesus died for your sin? Why, why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't he just do, give us a do-over? What, in golf, I think, you get a, was a mulligan, or what is that expression where you, that doesn't count. I, it's a mulligan, I get a do-over. Why didn't God just give the human race a do-over? You know, we blew it. God's a God of love, right? Well, why didn't God just say, ah, okay, uh, first try. We'll, we'll do a do-over. Because unlike us, God can't overlook sin. He's got to deal with it. It's got to be paid for. And either we were going to pay for it for eternity in hell, or God was going to come down and die in our place, which is exactly what Jesus did. So on the cross, various attributes of God were on display, not just the ones I've talked about. On the cross and through the resurrection, other attributes of God were put on display for the world to see things like God's power, his power to defeat his enemies, holiness, righteousness, judgment against sin, that sin has to be judged, right? Goodness, wisdom. I mean, there was a lot of things that the world would have never seen about God if Jesus hadn't died on the cross. In fact, there was a lot of things angels would never have seen about God if we hadn't blown it. Not that I'm patting us on the back as fallen sinners, right? What am I talking about? Angels stand in the presence of God, right? I mean, you know, Gabriel, Michael, you know, all the angels stand in the presence of God. And, of course, they know God in that respect in a way we don't because we don't see him face to face. They see his omnipotence, his power, his radiating holiness. I mean, they see that stuff, right? But without us having blown it, they would have never seen the love of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God because sin has to be punished. I mean, think about all the things 
And by the way, Peter said something kind of, I'm not going to say mystical because that word's misused, said something that kind of takes us back. When it comes to our relationship with God, now they stand in the presence of God, but when it comes to our relationship with God, they desire to look into it. What do you mean? Angels don't have God living inside of them. Fallen, redeemed man does. Mankind, right? So there's a lot going on through the cross and the resurrection of Christ that put many of God's attributes on display and through it God was glorified one author said and I quote the cross was like a beautiful multifaceted diamond it shone, shone and radiated with the attributes of God which brought him glory end quote but listen and I've already alluded to it the greatest glory of the cross listen the greatest glory of the cross was the redemption it purchased for mankind Turn to John 12. Let's pick it up in verse 27. Now, what Jesus talked about on the last night before his crucifixion was not new. He had been teaching on these various topics and teachings and doctrines all throughout his public, all throughout his ministry. What happened in the last few hours of Jesus' life as he gave his disciples one final teaching, he was recapping. He was he was reminding them of all the important things he had taught them, things they would have to know if they were going to, in a short time, take over the ministry he had begun. Right, the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. They were going to be taking up the mantle very shortly. So he's reminding them of some of the most important teachings that he had given them over the course of his ministry. And we see it here in John 12, where he said in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, save me from the cross. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is why I was born. This is what... We, the Father, decided in eternity past, right? Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Satan's kingdom is the idea. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth on the cross... I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Can I just say this? If you're a Christian here this morning, you are the Father's love gift to the Son. What do you mean? You're his bride. In those old days, it was the fathers who chose brides for their son, right? Abraham sent Eliezer, but Abraham chose a bride Isaac. In those days, you say, well, that was a rotten system. I like choosing my own spouse. How's that working out? How's the divorce rate? I'm not saying we go back to that way. I'm just saying it wasn't so bad. You know, two teenagers with raging hormones, they're going to make the best choices? I don't think so. But the father 
chose us, right? We were Ephesians 1, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. All three were involved in our salvation. But Jesus is talking about this, that we are gifts of the Father to him, our, his bride, right? And uh, John 6, verse 37. I'm sorry, I didn't have you turn to that, did I? That's where I wanted you to go. John 6, starting with verse 37. Talking about this, that we are God, God the Father's love gifts to the Son. Verse 37, however those, the Father is, uh, however, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will re never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, and not to do my own will. And this and uh, this is the will of God, that I should lose not even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For this is my Father's will, that of all who see his Son and believe in him should have everlasting life. And I will raise them up at the last day. I would like to camp on this for the rest of our time this morning and then pick it up next week, God willing. Verse 40, once again, for this is the Father's will, that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Um, we talk a lot about eternal life as Christians, right? But like the glory of God, if somebody said, can you just really define that for me? We might have a hard time. Let me start off by showing you what the Bible says about eternal life. Turn to 1 John 5. First John 5, and I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT 2nd edition, all right? First John 5.20, I'm sorry. First John 5.20. Because John, who wrote the gospel, wrote this book as well. So we know he, uh, the same language and things that, you know, characterize both. But verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given us understanding so that we can know, and that's a very intimate knowledge, the knowledge of being one with Christ through salvation is the idea, so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with His Son. We're saved. His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God. And listen, He is eternal life. He is eternal life. Eternal life is first and foremost a person. It's not just living forever. I mean, to some people, that thought is alone, living forever. That thought alone is agonizingly horrible because their lives are miserable and depressing, and so in their mind, death will bring a welcomed release. Listen, just because life goes on forever doesn't mean it's a good life. Life in hell will go on forever, and that's not going to be a good existence by any means. One night... Many years ago, um, I went into my boy's room. I'm not sure if my daughter was even born yet. I went into my boy's room to, they slept in the same room, bunk beds, to talk them in and to pray with them as I did every night. And my son Bobby, who at that time was about five, now Bobby grew up in church and he went to Sunday school, and so he was no doubt thinking 
of something he had learned maybe in Sunday school. Probably this was a Monday, probably the night, the day before. And uh, I didn't know that at the time. I just know when I walked into his room, he seemed very anxious, upset. And uh, I said, you know, he was wrestling with something. Um, and I asked him what was troubling him. And I was kind of taken back by his response. <laughs> He's five. He's, he was worried and felt trapped by the concept of living forever. You see, the thought he was wrestling with in his little mind was the problem of never-ending, never-changing nature of eternal life. That it's going to be existence stretched out into infinity with no end and no escape. He felt trapped by that doctrine. Smothered by it. In this life, if you got bad stuff going on, you die, you leave. Right? But what happens in eternity? With eternal life, there's nowhere to go. You can't ever leave, right? It's like the Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. I'm sorry. I just That just popped me. Strike that from the tape. Um, you know, guys, that's a concept I'm sure troubles, I guess, many people. When it comes to us sharing with them the idea of accepting Jesus as their Savior and living forever. What we need to communicate to people is that eternal life, the eternal life the Bible speaks of, uh, isn't about prolonged, never-ending existence like you might know life on the earth. Sadness, misery, heartache, pain, and so on. We need to first of all share with them that eternal life is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you find anything bad in Jesus' life was all good? If eternal life is in him, it's all good, right? But not only that, eternal life is a person. Not only is it a person, I should say, it's also something that that person can give. Look, I have given life to three children. My wife helped a little, but I have given life to three children. <laughs> but for me to give life, I had to have life, right? I mean, I had to be alive myself to impart life to anyone else. In that regard, I am life, and it's the characteristic of everything that has life to reproduce itself. Now, even if a person's childless. Every cell in their body, in all of our bodies, reproduces themselves every seven years. Because it's the nature of life to beget life. That's how God designed it all. When God's word says that Jesus Christ is eternal, is eternal life, it means that in him resides life that never ends. That's true. And while that's true, we need to understand also that eternal life isn't so much a quantity of life as much as it is a quality of life. Now, I'm going to hang on to that because we'll really develop it next week. We're talking about eternal life. And for most people, that's just really long existence that never ends. But the Bible, when it talks about eternal life, isn't talking so much about the quantity of life. It is the quality of this life that is really the thing that we need to key in on, right? But getting, just hold on to this, getting back to the idea that Jesus himself is eternal life, when we talk about this life, the exciting thing about it 
and I realize I'm talking to the choir, most of you say have known this for many years. But please hang in there because we have people every week, new people, people watching online who may have never heard this. So be patient, okay? But the idea when we talk about Jesus being eternal life, when we talk about this life, the exciting thing about it is that he can reproduce this life in anyone who desires it. I mean, I can give physical life, but I can't impart spiritual life. Because that life only resides in and flows from God who, listen, is, not just has, who is spiritual or eternal life. You see, you can't take a Christian mom and a Christian dad and get a Christian child. Now, physical men and women can produce physical children. But they're not born again spiritual children. Because only God has the power to give spiritual or eternal life because it resides in him alone, in Jesus Christ, right? Spiritual life comes from one person alone, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't say, I am one of many ways, one of many truths, and one of many lives. He said, I am, I am alone, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody ever gets to heaven, which is a spiritual environment, who hasn't undergone a spiritual birth. And only Christ can do that, right? Can give you that. And so eternal life is a person who can reproduce that life in others. As Jesus went on to say in our text this morning, verse 2, it says, as you, as you have given him authority, Father, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus Christ alone has the power to impart this life. My wife and I imparted life to our children. But we couldn't impart to them spiritual life. It's been truly said God has no grandkids. Because everyone has got to be born of God directly. Because only he can give this life. You say, well, I want that. That sounds good. I want that. Well, it's good. You need that. We all need it. And verse 3 gives the essence of how to receive it. And this is eternal life that you may know through the new birth is the idea that you may know that that, uh, they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Guys, eternal life is passed from the Father to the Son to those who receive Jesus by faith and are made one with him through the new birth. That's John 3. As we just said, eternal life is not really a length of time as time won't even exist in eternity, right? Time is a physical dimension. It's, we live in a four-dimensional universe, height, width, depth, and time. But someday the physical universe will be gone. It will be replaced by a spiritual universe. And the idea is that time won't exist. In heaven, there's not going to be any past or any future. There's only going to be the eternal present tense as God lives in. That's why he is the great what? I am. That is intended to communicate the idea that God is always in the eternal present tense. With It doesn't say, I, you know, I, I was the great I am or I will be the great I am. It's I am who I am, right? I am who I am, not the great I was or the great will be. But eternal life, one more time to say it, is not really a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. 
Our life in heaven will be a new existence of some kind, a new experience. Probably we'll be living in a new dimensionality. And as I said the first service, could you imagine how wonderful life is in three dimensions? Well, I said four, but okay. In, just say, three dimensions as opposed to two dimensions. Think about that. How life is in, you can't hug anybody in two dimensions, right? You can only butt up to them edge to edge. By God adding a third dimension, it created an environment that was incredible, right? What if in heaven we live in 10 dimensions or 100 dimensions or 50 dimensions? We can't even imagine how it's going to be, how life is going to be back in that day. But I want to just bring this to a close by just saying this. Eternal life doesn't start in heaven. Eternal life starts right here on earth the moment a person receives Jesus Christ into their heart as their Lord and Savior. I'll read these quickly because we're out of time. But John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has, we already have it, everlasting life, he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life in heaven, but the wrath of God abides on him. And here's the one I really love, 1 John 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, that he has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have everlasting life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So whatever this life is, that whatever this life that Jesus is and imparts to those who believe in him, it is given the moment a person receives him into their heart as their Lord and Savior. In other words, we're not waiting to enter into eternal life as Christians. We're living it right now. And I say that because I grew up a Roman Catholic, and the Roman Catholic Church says, if you believe you have eternal life right now, you are anathematized, cursed to the lowest hell. Not even the Pope knows he's got everlasting life. we got to die and wait until we die to find out. Well, that's a little late. I mean, really? i got to wait until I die? What if I don't have it? What if I didn't work enough works? You know, it's not about works, right? So, but, but, but that's the idea. It's Christian, eternal life is essentially God living his life in us, which means that when I received Jesus into my heart as, uh, as my Savior, the Holy Spirit moved in and filled me, filled you with the life of God, which, you know, we're enjoying right now, not waiting someday to have. So what about physical death? Well, physical death for the Christian is glorious. Because physical death, what it does for the Christian is to release us from all the negatives of this fallen, of this fallen, failing, sinful body we were born with. Right? Didn't Paul say the outward man is perishing what? Day by day? Who can attest to that, right? When I was younger, I thought, well, yeah, okay. Now I'm older, right? David, once I was young, now I'm old. Uh, a lot of things are coming into focus. Oh, that's what Paul meant. The outward man is perishing. Amen to that. I feel it every morning when I get out of bed, right? But that was the effects of the fall. That was all of us, you know. God said in the Garden of Eden, if you eat the fruit of this tree, knowledge of good and evil, 
The Hebrew is dying, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve set in motion something called the, the um, law of entropy. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything now is going from order to disorder. Integration to disintegration. Everything is rusting and decaying and so on. We're no, we no sooner are born that we begin to grow up, but we're actually growing old and go, growing towards death is the idea. But physical death for the Christian just releases our spirit from an old worn-out tent. Isn't that the language Paul used in 2 Corinthians 5, 1? We know that someday our earthly tent, this body, is going to be destroyed, and then when it's destroyed, we're going to move into a glorious new mansion, um, not made with hands eternal in the heavens. He's talking about our glorified new body. This, is a, this body is a, is a tent. A tent is a temporary structure. It's wearing out, it's growing old, it's going to eventually die. But for the Christian, I'm going to move into a glorious new body. D.L. Moody, great evangelist, right? Chicago, native Chicagoan. He says, someday you're going to read that D.L. Moody has died. Don't you believe it? At that moment, I'll be more alive than I've ever been. Because all that will have happened is Moody, D.L. Moody will have moved out of an old, broken-down tent into a glorious new mansion, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Amen. And Paul talked about this in Romans 8, 28. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. We're saved with the Spirit of God in us. We, uh, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, listen, the redemption of our bodies. When you got born again, when I got born again, what got born again was our spirit. And our soul was redeemed. Our body is not. Our body won't be redeemed until the rapture. And if somebody has died in Christ, they will be resurrected a microsecond before those of us who are living at the time. They will all be caught up into heaven, but on the way up, and it'll be a quick, quick journey. We will all be made perfect in our physical bodies. We'll get our glorified bodies. And uh, that's going to be an incredible thing. So, guys, just by closing, let me just say this. Um, eternal life is Christ's life. It's Jesus' life. It's an existence that only belongs to God and to those who receive him, receive Christ into their heart and are made one with him. Let me say it one more time to set us up for next week. Eternal life isn't so much a quantity of life. It is a quality of life. Look, this subject was so important to John that he tells us at the end of his gospel that that was the whole purpose for which he wrote his gospel. He said in John 20, verse 31, I wrote these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Spiritual life, eternal life. Fifty-four times in John's gospel, he talks about this life because he wants desperately for everybody to have it. John wrote his gospel because he was passionate about people receiving eternal life, being saved, of course. But here's the thing, and think about this this week. We'll get to it next time. You've accepted Christ, many of you. Those of you who haven't, please come up afterwards so we can pray with you, okay? But for those in this room or watching online who have given your heart to Christ, you have been born again. You have eternal life, right? As I said, it begins right now. So the moment you accepted Christ, you had it. The problem is a lot of Christians don't, Live like anything's different. 
I mean, okay, we've defined eternal life, but what does it look like in the practical lives of those who possess it? Seriously. If this life is abundant and full of glory, well, then why do Christians still get depressed? Why do they still take drugs until they become addicts? Why do some Christians, and I've met one, commit suicide? And I don't, well, how, how does this work? Unbelievers want to know this. You say that you have basically the answer for all of man's problems, receiving Christ as your Savior, but I'm looking around at you church people, and I tell you what, I see a lot of backbiting, gossip, a lot of bad things. Why isn't that more Christians are not enjoying the fruits of this eternal life that's so real and wonderful? That's a great question. That's a legitimate question. It's one that we should wrestle with and know the answer to when somebody asks us this question. So next week, I'd like to revisit this for a little while longer. I mean, Jesus brought it up. Blame him. No, he talked about eternal life, right? And we need to know what he was talking about if we're going to be able to have it. If we don't have it yet or share it with those that don't have it, we ought to know this stuff. So come on back. God willing, we'll t look at this next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your son. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You came down willingly to die for sinners. You didn't have to die. Nobody took your life from you. You gave it freely for the sheep. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We are in the Holy of Holies, and as such, we are in way over our heads, but we ask for the Holy Spirit to give us insights and illumination into the things that you said to your Father and the Father said to you that we can glean somewhat of these incredible truths that we can apply then into our lives. So Lord, thank you. We ask you to bless this week with health, safety, and productivity. For us and our families, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.